I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Claudette Colvin. We discuss the beginnings of Claudette's life, her first impression on segregation in a retail store, the bus incident, her friendship with Jeremiah Reeves, her part in the Montgomery bus boycott, Browder versus Gale, and the hardships she endured after the end to bus segregation. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, y'all, I have no idea anything about Claudette's story. So you're going to need to help me, and I'm assuming a lot of our white listeners probably have no idea who she is. So what's tell me about her. Yeah, Claudette Colvin was a critical figure in the Montgomery bus boycott and everything that went down there. So... We're going to back up just a little bit and talk about the bus system in Montgomery and about the Montgomery bus boycott, and then we're going to get into Claudette's story and how she helped to spark and ignite the bus boycott. Okay. So in Montgomery, Alabama, buses were totally segregated. There were 36 seats on each bus, and the front 10 seats of each bus were completely dedicated to white people. Black people couldn't sit in them no matter what. So... The way that it would typically work is the buses would start in the black part of town and black people would board and they would get on, pay their 10 cent fare, and then they could go back and sit in a seat, but not in those front 10 seats. But then what would happen is as soon as a white person gets on the bus, they could sit in one of those 10 seats and every black person that boards the bus after that can no longer even walk by the white person can't walk down the aisle. They would have to pay their fare and then walk around behind the bus, climb in back through the back of the bus. And so it was both an indignity but also an injustice because a lot of racist bus drivers would actually just start driving. If If it was taking too long, they would get impatient and they start driving. And even after the person has paid their fare, they would just leave them behind. And then if the bus filled up, if all the black people filled the whole, all, all the other seats and the, the seats dedicated, those front 10 seats were just empty, the black people still couldn't sit there. They just had to stand. If more white people got on so that there was more than 10 seats filled, then whenever another white person would get on, they would have to clear out an entire row. And so all the black people in that whole row would have to stand up and go stand in the back. They couldn't even just clear a single seat for the extra white passenger to get on. And what's the what? What years are we talking about here? So the the bus boycott. I mean, this is the fifties. Okay. Uh, and just to be clear, like black people were paying taxes that were paying for the buses. Yeah, they were the majority. This wasn't like a free like, hey, we're just this is a free thing. It's like, yeah, it was a ten cent fare. And then it was majority black ridership, so the bus system got most of its money from the black people. And then, yeah, so they equally funded it and even more supported it through their patronage. But the buses still were segregated and they were just mistreated in multiple ways. Yeah. 
So that was kind of how the, the bus system worked. There actually was technically a law from 1906 that said that if a bus was completely full and a black person didn't have another seat to move to, then when a white person got on, they didn't have to give up their seat because they had no seat to move to. But that law, even though it was technically on the books, it was universally ignored by the bus drivers and a city ordinance gave the bus drivers policing powers. Right. Some of the bus drivers even carried guns. Mm. And the, the Montgomery bus system deliberately hired tough men to be the bus drivers and instructed them that their main job other than driving the bus was to enforce the segregation rules. So even though technically it was a law, it, there was no way to actually demand that right. The bus driver would, and in Claudette's case, she technically wasn't in violation of the law as it was written because of that 1906 ordinance. But uh, we'll see later, she still got arrested and, and that didn't really matter. Okay. And the, the bus drivers were racist. They were known for being racist. And they it was reported widely that they would commonly refer to black people by insults. They would call them black cows or black apes. Mm-hmm. And so that's the context of the oppressive segregated busing system. And when you say that they're racist, are you meaning that they're racially insensitive people? Or were they, you yeah. know that whole... Like, yeah, yeah. You can be racially insensitive and not be racist. Yeah. So, like, when you're saying that bo- the bus drivers are racist, yeah. What is that? What are you really trying to imply there? And really, both definitions of the word racist. They both treated black people unequally, and they harbored internal feelings of hatred towards black people. So they fit the full bill yeah. of being racist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Before Claudette Colvin, there were some earlier actions on the bus that from other people that brushes with the law and resistance to the segregation rules. In 1946, Geneva Johnson was arrested for talking back to a driver and not having the correct change. And then a few years later, Viola White and Katie Wingfield were arrested for sitting in seats reserved for whites. But their cases didn't really blow up because they pled guilty and paid a fine. So then there wasn't really much to appeal and it couldn't become a legal battle. In 1952 was really the worst case prior to Claudette Colvin, or really even the worst that happened, because a man died. A man named Brooks boarded a bus, he paid a dime at the front, and then he walked back to his seat. But the bus driver insisted that there's white people on the bus, you have to leave the bus and come back through the back, you can't just walk back to your seat. So the man was offended, Brooks said, nope, I'm just going to walk then. So he went to get his dime back because he'd already paid the dime fare. And the bus driver wouldn't give his dime back mm. and ended up calling police onto the bus and the police shot and killed Brooks. Wow. That's when? Over a dime. That was in 1952. Wow. I think what's interesting is a lot of people would even say now, like with protesting and, I mean, they're not even protesting. They're just, they're some form of resistance of, mm-hmm. you know, hey, resisting indignity. Yeah, it's indi- but the whole argument of this isn't how you go about change. You know, you do it a different way. You don't resist like that. It's interesting because it almost seems like, and we'll talk more about you know the whole thing blowing up with Claudette. But it just kind of disproves the whole argument of hey, don't resist a certain way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think as Christians, we would probably we'd be anti some ways of resisting, just from our. Yeah, there'd be certain lines. There's certain lines, yeah, we wouldn't want to cross. 
but there's no good way to resist. Yeah, there's no good way, especially Absolutely. like dignity. It, yeah. How do you do that? And what's interesting about that is it, it almost entirely comes from white people saying that, which mm-hmm. we've never had to. Yeah. And just to clarify what I mean by that, there are good ways to resist. What I mean is there's no way to resist that the white dominant culture is going to accept as good. Yeah. Right. Like they'll say, no, you shouldn't resist this way, you should resist a different way. But then any way you pick to resist, if you're challenging the status quo in any meaningful way, they're not going to like it. Yeah. And they're going to come up with reasons why they don't like it. But so it's like, no- this is how we even got to where we don't have segregated buses because of mm-hmm. people resisting. It just almost seems like mm-hmm. there were even multiple stories and stories mm-hmm. of, and then it didn't happen until you know one thing blows up really big mm-hmm. and then change happens. And it's almost like yeah. we've seen that pattern even in the last year. Yeah, I mean, even we'll reference this later because MLK comes into this story, but the fact that he had 75% disapproval rating in his day <laughs> and he was resisting good. peacefully yeah. and it's even worse among white people because that's the broad population. Yeah, There's no way to resist that is meaningful that's not going to be challenged. Yeah. Yep. But it still needs to be done. It makes the world more just. So Claudette Colvin, let's, let's bring her into the story. Okay. So first we got to back up to her being born in 1939, so it was a little before all this was, was going on. And she was born to, her parents were Mary Jane Gibson and C.P. Austin, but she was adopted early on by her great aunt and great uncle. And their last name was Colvin, so she took the last name Colvin. So her great aunt was Marianne Colvin and her great uncle was Q.P. Colvin. And they were in a little town called Pine Level. And they, they were older, but they became like parents to Claudette. So growing up, she was a little bit insulated and had, a, I think, a pretty good early childhood. There was a woman named Mama Sweeney who was in Pine Level that was just a really great figure and mentor. She had Claudette over. She spent the night over there with her. And this woman was educated and helped educate all of the children in town. She taught them how to count to 100 using peanuts. She had a Bible and a Webster's Dictionary, and she would help teach them to read and write. And Claudette actually, through both Mama Sweeney and just her great aunt and great uncle, she was able to really excel. She skipped a grade early on, so she was took to education. She did say, and she, she talks in, in her writings about how the school that she grew up in, just some of the racial dynamics of her early childhood education was there would be they'd be in school and then a white farmer would just come into the school and say I need two boys and then two of the black boys who were in early elementary education were expected to just get up and go work in the fields for the day wow and the school year was shortened and they they didn't you know the, the classroom wasn't even full because farmers would just be coming getting laborers so you see some of the oppressive dynamics even from an early age. But then she had more encounters with racism later on. And there's kind of three real episodes that we're going to talk about, but she obviously had more than that. But one was that was kind of shaping for her was that when she was young, she went with her her mom, her great great aunt, but she was like a mom to her, so I'm just going to start calling her her mom. Yeah. She went with her to the, a clothing store and just realized that she wasn't allowed to try on any of the clothes. And she couldn't try on hats unless she wore a stocking over her head so the hat wouldn't actually contact her head. But even aside from that, she talked about just the kind of microaggressiveness. She didn't use that language, but the, the way that the salesperson, the saleswoman, treated her. 
is that basically the saleswoman would just bring her clothes and just expect her to buy them. And there was just this kind of pressure where it was almost she took it as Claudette was being rude if Claudette didn't just kind of take whatever she gave her. And Claudette asked for a specific hat that she wanted to try on. And the saleswoman kept bringing her different hats and refused to bring her the hat that she actually wanted. And then the saleswoman thought or acted like Claudette was being rude by not purchasing these other hats that she should have been grateful for, essentially. And it was just mm. just really put her off, and obviously it's easy to see why. And then a little bit after that, Claudette went to an optometrist, and he refused to see her until all the white patients had been treated and left because he said there's no way that any of them are going to sit in a chair after they've seen a black girl sitting in it. And then one other thing was that there was this park that was near Claudette's house, Oak Park. And it was the nicest park in town. And black people were allowed to walk through the park, but they had to keep walking. Because if they stopped and loitered, if they sat in a chair, if they kicked a ball, if they walked too slowly, the police would come and chase them out. So they, they could only walk through it. They couldn't really slow down and appreciate the park. It was hmm. essentially just for white people. So these things kind of shape some of... Uh, you kind of see the early roots growing of some of Claudette's inner desire to resist the system. But then when she went into high school, it was kind of on the heels of a tragedy. Her sister, Delphine, had passed away. And so she was grieving. And she kind of just... I think went internal a little bit, was a little bit more introverted during that kind of phase, just processing that grief. And she was just in an emotional state. And then she was looking at the school. It was an all-black high school, Washington. And it was uh, she was just seeing the dynamics and the kind of racial oppression on the outside world was affecting the high school also. Even in an all-black high school, she saw how the popularity was pretty much based on color, that the lighter-skinned girls who had straighter hair were the ones who were most popular. And the football players would only go out with the, the girls who were biracial, who would basically then hold, like, act like white girls around the darker-skinned girls. So there was just this hierarchy that was real sad to her and that she experienced, and she didn't really understand, like, why are we... Own, like owning this dynamic that the outside world wants to put on us. And she kind of pushed back against it. She sometimes heard some students would call other students nappy-headed because of their hair. And, and not nappy-haired, but nappy-headed and just kind of talking down to one another. And so that just weighed on her and she wanted to be a part of changing that world that she was in. She pushed back against it. But then the real spark that really pushed her over the edge into the f- being willing to risk her future, because really that's what she was doing. By refusing to give up her seat on the bus, she was risking her entire future and even her life. Her father, when she got out of jail after she was initially arrested, stayed up all night with a shotgun for fear that the Ku Klux Klan would come and try to lynch her. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the risk that you were taking by resisting the system. Mm-hmm. So what pushed her over the edge to being willing to risk her life and her future was there was a, a childhood friend, Jeremiah Reeves, 
who was arrested. He was a 16-year-old boy. Uh, he was her friend and neighbor and a few years older than her. And he was arrested on the charge of raping a white woman. And pretty quickly, five additional charges, similar charges were added to him. And this 16-year-old boy, who was known in the community for just being a sweet and kind boy, was taken by the police, not to the police precinct, but to death row, where he was forced to sit on the electric chair and they threatened that they would kill him if he didn't confess to having raped the the white woman. And then they made him spend the night there on the electric chair. So picture this, you're a 16-year-old boy and you're forced to sit in an electric chair, threatened, and then all night you're sitting there wondering if at any moment they're going to flip the switch and kill you. And it was a consensual relationship. Yeah. It was, I mean, they, it wasn't break. They were having a consensual sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. So then, but then after all night of this fear, he confessed to having raped her, even though it wasn't true, and was known in the black community. People, everyone knew and trusted that it wasn't real. But then he confessed to it, and, and it's like the Central Park Five. Just they were also minors who confessed to something they didn't really do. But when police use those kind of tactics, it's just known and understood now that you're going to get false confessions, regardless of the truth. But that confession was then used to convict him quickly of having raped her with an all-white jury, convicted him, and sentenced him to death for the crime of rape, which he hadn't even killed anyone. And the, the black community was furious over it because not only the injustice of this is a false allegation, but also the sentence disparity that white men regularly got away with raping black women. Claudette said she knew multiple friends who had been raped by white men, and she was told and trained to never go anywhere near a white man without other people around because it was just a common and known thing that white men would rape black women and face no consequences. And yet here's this 16-year-old boy who, even on this false allegation, is convicted to death. What's crazy is that when she was taken by the police officers, after the bus incident, they sexually assaulted her, Mm -hmm. which was very, very common. If a black girl got arrested, it was very common that they would be raped by police officers. So they were talking about her bra size and just kind of taunting her and basically talking talking about raping her Mm -hmm. in the police car on the way. Yeah. And she got arrested for assaulting the police. Mm-hmm. When and and that actually that's that she was sentenced for that. Like mm-hmm. they uh, they upheld that verdict. They dropped a couple of the other charges which I'm sure you'll talk about, but she was arrested for assaulting the police when the police assaulted her. Yeah. Can you Garen, can we maybe set aside like what's welling up in me when I hear a story like that is like I'm furious. And I want justice. Like I want, which I'm assuming nothing happened to anything involving Jeremiah's story. There was there was a little drama, which we can get into. But okay. The the NAACP appealed and actually won the appeal, so he was retried, and in 36 minutes, a second all white jury convicted him again of rape and reinstituted the death penalty. The Supreme Court took that appeal up but then they later just let it go. And so then he was ultimately 
put to death on the wow. same electric chair that had been used. Okay, so to that's even. Confession. I'm like even more furious. Yeah, the governor. But, the governor could have issued clemency and refused to. So let can we just talk to? Obviously, we're Christians, and we have a we have a big Christian audience. So if you're not Christian, this is okay. You can still be a part of this. But can you address someone like me that's so furious about that wants justice for that so bad, but it's not going to happen? And so, what do I even? I have a hard time. Where do I go? It's like I'm just furious, and then it, and then I just try to forget about it. But can you encourage someone like I would just assume a lot of our listeners, even even our non-Christian ones, are just furious at that. Mm-hmm. But what? Where can I? Yeah. Where can I go from there? Because I don't. Yeah. You know, I don't want to just like harbor it. I want to do something with it, but I I don't know what to do. Yeah. So I guess a couple of thoughts would be first that it's right to feel anger towards injustice that. All anger isn't bad. Actually, anger is a necessary part of love. That you cannot love something without being angry when it is threatened. Anger is the right response to any love being threatened. So some people think anger is sin. Anger can be sin because sometimes anger reveals that we love the wrong things. If I am over angry when I am threatened, that is an indicator that what I'm really loving is myself too much. And so my anger is all about my name, my fame, my glory. But we ought to be angry whenever we see things that we love threatened and we ought to love the right things that we're angry about the right things. So if you can hear a story about Jeremiah Reeves and if you're not angry, that's a problem because that shows you don't love the way you ought to. But then the the question is, what do we do with that anger? And obviously this is something that's played out already. It, it's in history. It's it's done. There's nothing you can do to make it right. Even the people who convicted Jeremiah Reeves and like the all-white jury, they're, if anything, they'd be in their 90s now. Jeremiah Reeves, if he had not been essentially lynched, lynched by the state of Alabama, because that's really what it was, he would be 85 today, which just shows how this is not ancient history. He would likely still be alive today. Like This was not so long ago. But it's done now, so what do we do about it? And we can't go back and do anything about it. What we can do is we can do something about the injustice today and make the world a better place today. But then for the injustices that have already happened, I think we just have to trust that God ultimately is going to make all things right. That ultimately, not a single injustice that has ever happened under the sun will stand. Not a single one. That ultimately all things will be sorted out and it'll all be paid for. Every unjust thing that has ever happened will ultimately meet perfect justice. And I mean, for the, for the Christian, there's, there's the kind of asterisk on that. And the hope for, that we extend is that that justice is either going to be met upon the people who committed it or paid for by Jesus. Like the Christian theological point or viewpoint is that Jesus paid for the justice that's deserved by his people on the cross. And that's the whole thing why Christians make a big deal out of the cross. But, but regardless, the broader point that applies to that anger that we feel is that we can trust that ultimately on the other side of things, there's, there's perfect justice that will come, that these, the all-white juries, the, the governor, the, the police officers, that they don't ultimately get away with the evil that they've committed. That's not always 
a satisfying answer now. Right. Yeah. Because first of all, I mean, there's just limited degrees to which we even believe or trust that that's true. And I think even for believers, it's like it's not completely satisfying because we don't completely believe that it's true. It's, it's like a degrees of faith. Right. But then, I mean, when you're talking about something that's already done, like <laughs> that's that's the hope that we have. And I think ultimately, when we do see it done. There, there will be a peace that comes on the other side of that. That there'll be a day after which nothing unjust ever happens again, and every injustice is paid for, and everything is set right. So, can we? I want to talk a little bit more about. I just really want to humanize Claudette a little bit more, and just you know, she aspired to be president. Like we're talking about somebody born, what year was she born? 1939? 39, yeah. And she aspired to be president. And like she she was fueled by activism because of her friend, because of, you know, her friend who was executed, Jeremiah, because of racism that she experienced, because of the rapes, raping of her friends, because of what was common everyday stuff in Alabama like they had to talking about the dressing rooms and the in the stores she she talked about how she had written a paper the day that she resisted on the bus she wrote a paper about segregation in dressing rooms and talked about how they would have to black people would have to take a brown paper bag with them to stores and draw like a, a diagram of their foot and that's like they couldn't try on clothes. They weren't allowed to, to try clothes on. So that's how, I mean, just the degradation. Why can't I put my foot in a shoe? How is my foot less or dirty or ne- like compared to a white person? Um, but she wanted to be president. She was a member of the NAACP Youth Council and had been learning about the civil rights movement in school. Rosa Parks was one of her mentors or became one of her mentors. And she says that when she was on the bus, she felt the hand of Harriet Tubman holding down one shoulder and um, Sojourner Truth holding down the other. So she, 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 she loved her history. She knew her history. And even how she was slighted by the civil rights uh, leaders because it was primarily, you know, black men, black ministers, and the fact that she got pregnant after the fact. And she wasn't, her mother even told her, let, let them, let Rosa do this because they like her. And Rosa, she, you know, because Claudette wasn't fair-skinned, she was dark-skinned. And so she even talks about how she she wasn't fair skinned. She didn't have good hair, and that's a that's a whole colorism issue. Mm-hmm. Good hair versus bad hair, and light skin versus dark skin. She was a teenager, and of course she got pregnant. Mm-hmm. But you know, and she says, "My mother told me to be quiet about what I did. She told me to let Rosa be the one. White people aren't going to bother Rosa. They like her. Rosa was an adult. She appeared to be." middle class. She had a job. So you had to be like palatable to whiteness. And can you imagine a lot of white people will say, I marched with Dr. King, but a lot of people who marched with Dr. King or a lot of white people who would consider themselves supporters of the civil rights movement, how they had to be pandered to and catered to 
by this presentation of what felt like the best of our blackness, that some of our blackness wasn't acceptable based on how we looked and how we were our station in life. And how Claudette, she yelled, this is my constitution, constitutional right. Like She was bold and brave, but she got slighted in how black people were conditioned. We, we don't talk often enough about how black people have been impacted by white supremacy and oppression to be against one another and how things like skin, skin tone and skin color and hair texture and appearance and assimilation, how those things can be uplifted. Language, like talking and, with a white dialect. Right, right. Yeah. It's just, and then she, she went through so much trauma, having been losing her parents, you know, not being raised by her parents, her dad leaving them, being raised by other people, her sister dying, talks about how she she excelled in school, but she had a problem with connection, connecting with people because of her, even her grief of losing her sister. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to humanize her a little bit more. She wasn't just, you know, some random person that decided she wasn't going to she, she, she was fueled by activism. The activism and the pursuit of justice was already in her, in her bones and in her blood. Mm-hmm. And she aspired to be president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think it's hard for me to imagine like a 16-year-old right now doing something for like major, for like civil rights or a movement. It's like, I almost think 16-year-olds are just like playing video games, not doing anything, but... A lot if, of them are. If any, a lot of them In are. In fairness, yeah. but if I mean, if anything, I think it should be encouraging to even Gen Z of yeah. like, hey, you can, you can make you, a difference. You can make a difference, and I know we're going to go into her story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was literally the spark that set everything off. Right. Like you yeah. can, you can be that. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit, kind of systematically through what went down that day when she refused to give up her seat on the bus. So that was in 1955, March 2nd. And she got off school and, and like Katina said, she'd done this paper. She had civil disobedience in her on her mind. And then she goes, gets on the bus, sits down with, with three of her friends back, back behind the 10 seats that they weren't allowed to sit in. Which I, I failed to mention this earlier, but an interesting aside, the 10 seats, the number 10 itself became an unlucky number in the African-American community in Montgomery, Alabama. That there's so much just animosity towards the indignity of not being allowed to sit in those front 10 seats that the number 10 took on the significance. Where Kind of like how we have, you know, avoid the number 13. They would skip over or try to avoid the number 10. It just had this mm-hmm. symbolic meaning. But she sat down behind those seats and then eventually those seats filled up and another white woman got on board, came back, and it was just expected that Claudette and her three friends would give up, get up and give up their seats. But her friends got up, but Claudette stayed. And this white woman just stood there. She refused to even sit on the other side across the aisle because to sit in the same row as a black person was a symbolic form of signaling equality, and she refused to do that. So then the bus driver yells back and says, I need those seats. And yelled for Claudette to get up. And some of the other white people, one, one man in particular, started yelling at Claudette and just yelling, you know, rude things. I don't, I don't know exactly what he yelled, but he was yelling back at her that she needed to get up. 
Bus driver sees that she's not going to move, pulls to the next stop and hails a transit authority officer um, onto the bus. And he comes, tries to get Claudette to move, but he doesn't have arresting authority. So then they go another stop down and two police officers get on. And Claudette still refusing to get up and they go to arrest her. And she said that immediately when they went to arrest her, she knew not to fight back. She just went limp. And one of the police officers kicked her, which is totally unnecessary, but just kicked her. All the other black passengers on the bus testified that she didn't resist arrest or fight back. And she actually later commented, because she was charged with assaulting the officer, which was a false allegation. Mm. And she later commented that if that was true, she would have been killed or beat up way worse than she was. So she's, she basically was like, that's clearly a false allegation because I wouldn't have made it off the bus in one piece if I actually had been right. assaulting the police officers. But nevertheless, she was arrested and, and charged with assaulting these officers. And we've already kind of talked about her treatment then on the police ride. A, a police officer, a white police officer, climbed in the back with her and they were just heckling her and assaulting her the whole way to the police office. The the station. And then they didn't charge her as a child, they charged her as, as an adult. Typically children would be brought out to the country and just made to pick cotton as a sentence instead of prison, but she was charged as an adult. One of the officers said, we've had trouble with that thing before. Uh, just dehumanizing her and talking about her like she's not even human. They called her an N-word bitch uh, they talked about her body parts, her bra size, and openly talked about assaulting her and intimidating, intimidated her with sexual suggestive talk. And then they didn't give her a phone call. They booked her and locked her up. Later on when she was eventually released, like I said, her, her father was afraid that the Klan was going to come and get her. So the, the town of Montgomery was furious after this happened. Her, Claudette's level of resistance, I mean, even as they were pulling her off the bus, she's just yelling, this is my constitutional right, this is my constitutional right. And she actually didn't break the law because of that 1906 law that I'd mentioned earlier. And so the town was just furious and up in arms. And in response to her arrest, it was it became the talk of the town. And then one of the civil rights activists, uh, Joanne Robinson, issued a list of demands to the city. There actually were some boycotts of some like more temporary, not everyone boycotted, but there were some limited boycotts of the busing system in response to what happened. And Joanne Robinson demanded three things of the busing system, made three demands. She said that black people, she demanded that they change the system so that black people would board from starting at the back of the bus and that white people would board from the front of the bus and they would just fill the bus up that way until whenever it meets in the middle, both black and white people would stand if there's no room. That's actually the system that other segregated cities were using. Montgomery's was actually not the same as the surrounding cities. So that was one of the demands. They didn't even, the, the early demands weren't even that you end all segregation. It's just give us the dignity of not standing when there are empty seats. And then they demanded that black people wouldn't have to leave the bus and go board through the back anymore. That was the second demand, that they would be able to just walk down the aisle to, to get to the back. And then the third demand was that there would just be more stops in the black community because the buses would stop at every intersection in the white community but had much more occasional stops in the black community. So those were the three demands early on in the boycott. Yeah, that seems pretty easy. Yeah, yeah it wasn't even <laughs> a, end all segregation un, until later on it, 
kind of grew and shifted. So then she was tried and sentenced for three crimes initially. One was resisting the police officers and the other two directly related to segregation. But the, the judge actually realized that the black community was going to use her case and appeal it to try to fight, it, fight back against segregation laws. So he actually dropped the other two charges which at first sounds merciful that he's dropping the other two charges. Right. But really he was just doing that so that Claudette would still have a criminal record but wouldn't be able to use the case to fight the segregation laws because they dropped the charges other than resisting the police officer or right. assaulting the police officer. Interesting. So then they, they, they had no way to... They could appeal that, but they couldn't appeal it in order to fight segregation anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's worthy to note that uh, some black civil rights leaders got together to kind of deal with her arrest, and they met with the police commissioner, commissioner and that included Martin Luther King. Mm. And her her pastor bailed her out, and he, he was the one that told her that she brought revolution to, to Montgomery. Like, she sparked, even though there were other, you know, instances of resistance, like, she sparked it specifically, like, with her cries for justice and you know, how people, how, how black people did rally initially. But then, of course, they bypassed her and chose someone else. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, you mentioned a lot of the reasons why they bypassed her earlier. I mean, she was just seen as a teenager. She's, they thought she's not, like, controllable enough. She also was from just an economically poorer part of town, went to a working-class church, not, not like one of the wealthier Classes, black churches, yeah. yeah. Black churches. And so they passed over her, and Rosa Parks then took her actions that probably we don't have to even explain to people because she's famous for it, of having basically emulated Claudette's actions. Rosa Parks basically learned some of the lessons from what had happened to, Cla- uh, to Claudette, mm-hmm. and they used Claudette as kind of the starting place of how do we do the civil disobedience but learn the lessons from Claudette? How do we do this without being open to the charge of having resisted arrest. And, right. uh, how, you know, so they, they strategically used Claudette's story and built upon it in order for Rosa Parks to get arrested, to be the figurehead of this movement. And so then Rosa Parks became kind of the, the figure that was kind of known for the, the Montgomery bus boycott. But Claudette, first of all, sparked it. And second of all, she didn't go out of the story. She actually continued to play an important part of the story. And that is because she was one of the people who Fred Gray, a lawyer, used to directly challenge the, the segregation laws in the court through Browder versus Gale, a court case. And that case actually became basically the way that the Montgomery bus boycott ended in victory. And so Claudette wasn't like the spokesperson or the figurehead, but she actually had a, a hugely important part to play. Browder versus Gale was a case that the civil rights activists knew that they had to get before federal judges because they knew that the city and the state judges were going to be so racist that there's no way that they had a chance whatsoever. So they had to you know, be strategic in how they filed it in order for it to be brought before federal judges, which were still more like fairly local, but they were appointed and kind of part of the federal system. So they were maybe a little bit less beholden to state and local racist laws. And so they filed the case with five defendants or five plaintiffs and one of the five 
ultimately did drop off. Jeanette Reese dropped out because her white employer just pressured her and basically threatened to fire her if she stayed on the case. So then Claudette Colvin was one of four plaintiffs that because of the injustice that she'd suffered was suing to overturn the segregation laws. And Claudette was put on the stand and she testified and her testimony became a critical part of the case. The the defense attorney representing the state and city was trying to question her and trying to get her to basically link the whole bus boycott to Martin Luther King, who was very unpopular. And the whole idea was basically try to get her to say that MLK is leading the movement because they were trying to paint MLK as this outside agitator who's coming and the black people in Montgomery were just fine and happy with the laws as they were before MLK came and stirred them up and he's basically whipping them into a frenzy to turn them into political pawns. So he's trying to paint MLK as this leader and he just very aggressively was going after Claudette Colvin trying to get her to say this. Which for context, in that day, it wasn't even socially acceptable for Claudette to really make eye contact with this a white man. It was the cultural, you were supposed to just, if you're a, a black woman you're, and you're younger, you were supposed to just look down and just be submissive. Mm. And here's this white lawyer just aggressively over and over again coming after her. And she just boldly refused to say what he was trying, to go into the corner he was trying to paint her into. And Ultimately, he even uh, kind of pinned her at one point and she just refused to say what, like she refused to answer one of his questions in a way that ultimately then kind of got her out of the the pinch. So she was bold, brave, got through the testimony and was wildly heralded, uh, heralded as having just done a really good job in the testimony. So then after lunch, one of the city commissioners, Clyde Sellers, testified, if segregation barriers are lifted, Violence will be the order of the day. But then Judge Reeves, one of the three judges on the panel, thought this over for a moment and then asked Sellers, can you command one man to surrender his constitutional rights, if they are his constitutional rights, to prevent another man from committing a crime? Basically saying the white argument was white people are going to be violent and not going to have it, and we have to prevent that violence by continuing segregation. And the judge is like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you take away the, the constitutional rights of the black community to prevent white community violence, which I think is just important today in our context to recognize that like the prevailing idea today is that black people are viewed as, are just widely criminalized. And here the segregation argument itself was propped up on this idea of white criminality in this ironic way mm. that, that we have to keep segregation so that there's not violence raining down on the black community because white people won't have it. It's crazy. So the judge, the judges, the three judge panel ultimately decided two to one in favor of the plaintiffs and that the segregation in the bus system had to end. But it was immediately appealed, so it didn't go into effect yet. It was appealed up to the Supreme Court. So there's there's no initial effect. The boycott continued, and then white people just intensified their efforts to sabotage the bus boycott. They the police in Montgomery would regularly pull over the rideshare carpool vehicles that black people were using to get around. And they would just give like phony tickets and, and they arrested MLK for driving 30 in a 25 mile an hour zone. They like arrested him for it. They, the police also 
actually committed assaults and property damage. They at one point, Joanne Robinson, who I'd mentioned before, two uniformed police officers came over to her house and poured acid on her vehicle and it burned quarter size holes through her vehicle. They there was sticks of dynamite left in some of the yards of some of the protesters. They arrested I think 120 of the like all the drivers and the leaders I think 10 or more of the pastors who were involved in the leadership. A lot of the leadership was arrested and booked for being a part of this peaceful civil disobedience. They tried to get insurance companies. They pressured insurance companies to end the insurance for the vehicles. And then they filed a lawsuit in the city to try to ban the carpool, claiming that it was an unlicensed transportation system. So they were at a hearing on that ban. The judge was, a white judge was clearly sympathetic towards the idea of banning. And you could kind of tell in the courtroom that he was planning on banning the the rideshare, which would have just forced the black community to to walk. A lot of them were already walking just to more visibly protest. They wanted to be seen walking to show that they would rather walk than, than be a part of the injustice. But a lot of them just had to, were rely, relying on the, the rideshare system. And so this, com, this meeting would have banned that. But then during that case, the word came down, all of a sudden there was a commotion and word came down that the Supreme Court had just backed up the Browder versus Gale ruling and had officially banned segregation on the Montgomery bus system. And, you know, more broadly because it's the Supreme Court. And there was just jubilation and rejoicing. The whole black community realized that they had won, that they had successfully ended the segregated system. Yet even despite that, even despite that victory, that judge still issued the ban on, (laughs) on the transportation system. The city of Montgomery refused to desegregate the bus system. They said until the the Supreme Court ruling is actually hand delivered to us, we're not going to enforce it or follow it. So they actually made it took weeks for it to come down and actually be hand delivered before the city would actually even follow it. And then there continued to be violence also in the wake of it. There was a 15-year-old girl who was randomly assaulted. There were death threats. There was at least four churches and multiple residences that were bombed. But those things faded out and history was changed. Meanwhile, Claudette had trouble holding down jobs, basically from then on, because she would get a job in the community uh, kind of anonymously by someone who didn't know the part that she had played in everything. But then black people would recognize her and come and just thank her and hug her for what she had done and how she'd been a part of it. And then the white boss or white employer would fire her. Or the you know there would be just pressure placed on the business to fire her. So time and again, and she had to change her name multiple times. She rotated her last name between Colvin and Austin trying to escape from this reputation, which was, you know, she had fame in the black community, but she was infamous among the white community. Right. And so she wasn't able to hold down jobs very well after that until she eventually had to kind of completely move away. I think she ended up in New York in order to try to get further away from the reputation that she'd had. She did. And she kind of went anonymous for a long time. She wasn't really remembered by history until kind of a resurgence of just her story coming out that was sparked by an article, I think in 
it was after 2000. So she was kind of only more recently remembered and re-recognized and honored for the part that she had played in changing the world and changing history. Yeah, it, it's a trip because there was a councilman whose sister was actually on the bus when she was arrested. And so he arranged for a street to be named after her. And she had to kind of petition with her family to be even acknowledged in the African-American Museum in D.C. And she's always, because she loved Rosa, Rosa was her mentor, she definitely wanted Rosa to have her place in history. But the the fact that she never got the real recognition until much later... And she, she, had, she, she made a statement. I do feel like what I did was a spark and it caught on. I'm not disappointed. Let the people know Rosa Parks was the right person for the boycott. But also let them know that the attorneys took four other women to the Supreme Court to challenge the law that led to the end of segregation. So she definitely deserves her respect and her honor. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be discussing the Amistad case. We'll leave you with this quote from Coretta Scott King. Hate is too great a burden to bear. It injures the hater more than it injures the hated. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details